You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wurundjeri and Bunurong country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Iris Lee. For nearly five years, Latoya Rule has been fighting for their brother, Wayne Feller Morrison. Rajri Kogotha Rangruman, who died in hospital after being aggressively restrained by prison guards on remand in Yatala Prison, Kona country in South Australia. We hear about the campaign to ban spit hoods and touch on abolition. A content warning for listeners that this show features descriptions of state violence. First, we hear from Latoya introducing themselves. So, I'm Latoya Aroharu. I'm an Aboriginal and Māori Takatāpui person, so a queer person. My pronouns are they, them. And I'm currently residing on Gadigal land in Sydney. And I've just moved here at the beginning of this year, previously uh, born and living on Ghana land in South Australia, where my family, yeah, my siblings are from culturally and Wayne as a Google and Wurringal person from the west coast of South Australia. So yeah, that's kind of how I'm situated in this yarn today. So I guess first starting on what has sometimes disappeared by these like, horrifying deaths in custody, would you like to talk about how you'd like Wayne to be remembered? Absolutely. So thank you for asking. Um, it's not every day that people actually consider who Wayne was as a person. Wayne was an artist, a fisherman, my elder brother, so I'm the youngest of five. He was the second after my eldest brother. He was eccentric. He played all different types of guitar. Electric was my favourite. He was a chef. So, yeah, he kind of just moved around to different careers and liked to try try all different things around and push himself, I guess, to learn new things. He was a dad, so to my niece, um, who's obviously hasn't hasn't got a dad anymore. But I guess the sad aspect of that is that she'll have to go on not knowing her dad. And my sibling's father also passed at a young age. And so there's real systemic issues here in my family that sadly have now been placed on her life as well. So I'm always thinking about the young people and the kids who are affected by deaths in custody as well, who don't always have a voice like us adults do around what's happening and the impact. But Wayne was such a loving dad and, and a loving brother as well. The last time I spoke to him, he was actually asking It was quite a while ago now, but he was asking about how he could have been involved in the stop force closures of Aboriginal communities protests. I think that was in 2014 or 2015, so about a year before he passed. And we lived on opposite sides of the city, so we didn't get to see each other too much towards the later time in his life. He was my brother. He was a normal, loving, funny brother. Thanks for that. The toll of these black deaths in custody in particular 
as just devastating and ongoing in the colony. Would you like to talk broadly around the circumstances of Wayne's death and your reflections on any key learnings from the inquest that ended some months ago? Absolutely. So to our knowledge, and again, it's been five years, almost on the 26th of September this year, it will be five years, 2021. So five years ago, at the time I was working in a social work organisation, a homeless day centre in Adelaide, and I was working in my capacity as a social work placement student. And I was running the prison helpline for housing at the time that connected all South Australian prisoners, uh, people in prisons and prisons to this line so that when people were about to get released, they could call up the line and, and see if we had anything to provide them. And so during that process, I learned that my brother Wayne had been in custody and that he yeah, was sent to a high to medium security prison, Yatla Prison in Adelaide, and that he, my mum had gone and seen him and that he had been out fishing all day and was quite exhausted. He wanted medical care and he had a headache. I don't know if he was widely conscious or not at the time, but I just know that my mum said he had needed medical assistance and that I don't think he was seen at all, to my knowledge, by anybody at the time. And so I learned only a few days later after his initial arrest that he was locked up. This was his first time in prison. He had never had run-ins with police before, to my knowledge. And yeah, I'm sure it would have been a really scary place for anybody, let alone an Aboriginal man from South Australia, with a name that's very widely known in the prison system, sadly, from his side of the family, to go in and into that space. It must have been very scary. And so he was on remand for six days. So on the Friday when he was due to face court to get bail, that we expected a home detention bail application. I had a few addresses waiting for him. My mum's address was deemed, I guess, incompetent or like it wasn't accepted due to the fact that she couldn't get Wi-Fi or a, a connection where she was because she was living in the hills at the time. So being on home detention, you need to be able to have a line of connection if they need to call you and the home detention officers need to come through. And so we put forward these addresses and it was, we were told, you know, that we would probably just come back to the court at a later date. But at the time, somebody ran in with a note for the court, just an administration person, and said that Wayne wouldn't be able to show up. So the magistrate just told us, actually, Wayne's not coming. We'll, yeah, we'll probably come back to the court later. We don't know what's happened. And I believe Timmy seemed to say that the note was very encrypted and that he really didn't know what had happened, but just told us a way to go away, I guess, and do our own research and call the prison to check where Wayne was. That led to many hours of trying to find out where Wayne had been taken. We were never told anything about what had actually happened to him until that night, and even then the details of that were really vague. What we knew was that we were sitting out in the car park. We received a call from Aboriginal Legal Rights much later 
to say that he'd been taken to the Royal Adelaide Hospital and was in intensive care on life support. We then saw a media release on the television by the his chief executive of corrections. He told the public that essentially a violent incident had occurred and that officers were injured and that somebody was in hospital. So there was a lot of sympathy toward the officers. There was a lot of care and we sent our condolences to the officers. But for Wayne, there was not much of anything at all and not anything for us. We were visited by some staff at the from the prison, including the Aboriginal liaison officer, who I had been calling that week. As I said, in my capacity as a social worker, I was calling to see if they could visit Wayne. I was calling every day to just tell him, hey, this is my brother. We haven't heard anything from him. This is how he went into the prison. What's been going on? Please just go see him. He gave me his word that he would. And of course, on the Friday, he stood before me with nothing much more to say and about what had happened. And I asked why he didn't visit Wayne, why nobody visited Wayne after our advocacy. And they had nothing to say about it. So, of course, we went up and saw Wayne. We were had to go up with security. Only two family members were allowed at the time in the room. The whole process was just so disgusting and so re-traumatising for us. There were run-ins that our family had with the security there because not only were the police up until the final moments of Wayne's death and other corrections officers were watching Wayne's body that entire time and us knowing that an incident had occurred in the prison, you would think that this would be a situation of bias at least to ensure Wayne's safety. We, we felt so unsafe that there were officers right outside watching him and watching us. But then there was security as well after we had Aboriginal Affairs remove the officers from overseeing his body continually. There was then security placed there which done and acted in exactly the same way that when it came to saying goodbye to Wayne and it came to turning off the life support machines, they literally physically stopped us from going in the room as a family together. So these incredible pinnacle moments were completely removed for us, from us as a family. And that's, again, just such an, a testament to the way the state enacts the further criminalisation of the wider community when one Aboriginal person passes. We had elders outside the hospital also trying to get in who have been and had been, some have passed away now, but visitors to prisons for many, many years where this oversight does exist so that Aboriginal elders can go in and check on people and offer that cultural support. We had that standing by for us and for Wayne, but they were denied entry as well completely into the hospital. And so, of course, our suspicion was growing about what we deem and what I personally deem still today as a cover-up of my brother's death and the true story of what happened. And that narrative from the hospital to today has continued. Across these stolen lands now called Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line, highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices, broadcast on the Community Radio Network. You've been listening to Latoya Rule. Latoya is an Aboriginal and Maori Takatapui researcher undertaking their PhD at UTS on Gadigal land. 
They have been talking about the campaign for justice for their brother, Wayne Feller Morrison, in particular the circumstances of his death, and soon onto the coronial inquest. So afterwards, my response after seeing Wayne die and after the the support life support machine was turned off, in complete shock, I walked at 4am from the hospital down North Terrace to Parliament and I sat on the steps waiting for the Premier to come out in the morning and come to work in the morning so I could tell him that my brother had just died. That was on Monday morning. That Monday we had already as well organised a media conference at Aboriginal Legal Rights Movement to speak about what had occurred. We didn't expect Wayne to die. So we, instead of showing up to a media conference, talking about what had happened and that my brother was now in ICU, it was the story of actually overnight, a few hours ago, he's just died in front of us. And we had to then speak to media. Really raw, you know, I hadn't showered, I hadn't gone home. I'd been sitting on the steps of Parliament to then, yeah, have to give a media conference. It was just such a hard time. But again, that entire process of cover-up has just continued to today. And as everybody would have seen who's been following our case, there's been multiple, multiple points of interjection, delays. The officers and their lawyers have tried to remove the coroner herself from the case, saying that she was biased. They lost that in the Supreme Court. There was another delay. They've delayed the process. They've won the right to the right against self-incrimination, which means that when they showed up this year, finally, five years later, to face us in court, they didn't have to give evidence much at all. They were able to plead the right against self-incrimination and the right to silence. The things that they, for the most part, just said was their names and not much more after that, even to the point of asking what happened in the van or there were more than 14 officers present at any one time before the van and around the initial restraint of Wayne with the spit hood and cuffs and being carried from that waiting cell where he was waiting to be on that video link with us while we were in that court, just multiple officers, they sat there and tried to say, they claimed to be the privilege while they were sitting there and tried to almost say that they weren't even there, that they weren't present. They gave no information to say that they were actually present on the day. That's how deluded this whole process became. These men are not ghosts. They are not immortal. They're physical living bodies of which my brother is no longer. Women on the line. So sort of turning to your research and writing, how you've like explored how blame for black deaths in custody is shifted from systemic colonialism and white supremacy and actors involved in these death, deaths and instead onto First Nations peoples. Would you like to speak to this particularly about so-called excited delirium that's come up in the inquest? So I think I'll take a step back and just talk about the different aspects really quickly of how Wayne was criminalised even further in the coronial so one thing that happened to Wayne was that a spit hood was placed over his head. He was carried face down into the back of a transport van with eight officers inside. One was the driver. 
there were five officers in the back with him. There's evidence being given that their feet had to go somewhere. If he was laying on the back on his stomach in what they call the prone position, their feet had to go somewhere. Somebody was at the top of his head. So given the height of the van, I've sat in that van as well in the prison after Wayne died. And to see the lighting, to see the, the structure of it, it's quite a small van. Obviously, it's a normal white transport van. It's not a truck. Officers' bodies would have had to be somewhere in that space as well, either on top of Wayne, which is the evidence I think that's being given in some part, or at least around Wayne, their, their bodies would have been on him. But prior to that, the carrying of him into that van, there's the footage of the officers physically using their force and their body upon Wayne as well in multiple ways. Along with the spit hood, flexi cuffs were put on his ankles and his wrists. And so, you know, that's the type of way that he was restrained. There's still no evidence given that he was necessarily spitting. There was evidence given that this is visual from the other officers. This isn't actual evidence in terms of material evidence. But there was witness gave that he had fluid coming from his mouth. But in terms of why they used a spit hood, I personally still don't know. And I personally think it's incredibly dangerous and did lead to part of his death. So his cause of death was restraint asphyxia, which means the way that he was restrained is suffocation. But that was partnered allegedly with a heart condition and essentially a heart attack. This idea of excited delirium comes then from the process of restraining Wayne and the alleged anger and vicious nature of what, you know, of who he was as Wayne and the terms used by a pathologist alongside excited delirium were things like genetic predisposition superhuman strength. This is genuine language by a medical professional used in this court that Wayne allegedly had superhuman strength. And so this idea of excited delirium is that he was so excited, he became delirious and excited, you know, angry, just superhuman, super strong, and essentially he just broke out. So they really do explain Wayne in animalistic terms which we know, coming back to systemic colonialism, eugenics, social Darwinism, these ideas of black people more generally being seen as less than human, these were all used to configure Wayne as a criminal, to configure Wayne as, yeah, less than human and less than worthy of living. We know that this term, excited delirium, is almost all the time, and I haven't actually found a case myself of a term, a time where it hasn't been used against a black person. But yeah, it's it's nearly always used against black people, particularly in America. It's a very specific American term that's being used in cases where black people have been murdered by police and corrections officers um, and other authorities. So we know that there's a lot of research happening at the moment that is looking into the racialization of killing and of criminalisation. And so excited delirium is an American term that's now being used in Australia in my brother's case and in another Aboriginal death in custody case not too long ago. And so the, the term itself is not supported 
by uh, many medical professionals across the globe. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to speak on the creative actions during Inquest and any reflections you have on them? We've got some pretty cool stuff coming up as well. So to all the listeners, keep an eye out. I'm very excited for it. As at the moment, we are trying to legislate the ban on spit hoods, but we've already had an incredible victory. So during this year, you know, our coroner's case has been stalled many times. It started, I believe, three years ago. It's pretty hard to think about at the moment but I think it properly started in 2017-2018 and so this year we during the coroner's court had allies dressed as prison officers and they had badges on them there's quite a few photos put out about this online as well they've had badges that say silent to speak to the silence I explained that's been occurring in the court and then we've partnered, I guess, Justice of Fella campaigners and our family have partnered with the Department of Home Affairs, shout out to our friends, and Matt Steak. And so collectively we have kind of looked at, yeah, how we can best represent what's occurring in the court. And so spit hoods were made well, things that look like spit hoods. We weren't going to use actual spit hoods that they used, of course. But spit hoods and hoods were made and the front was a mesh fabric where you couldn't see the person's face, but the back is the Union Jack. And the Union Jack was all cut up and sewn back together to obviously express the Crown and the state's involvement in deaths. We had two actions. So the first one, they had blood on their hands, fake blood. And they jumped out of a van. And on the van, we had stickers that said "Ban spit hoods. And following that action, you know, we had a, the van pulled up and they came out and we had flowers and we made it a real memorial for our community and for our family to really symbolise the grieving process for us and the defiance, how we're defying brutality as a family and our resistance and our community. And so... Following that, on that day, we got back to the house and we saw in the media that a statement was put out by the correctional services to say that they had made the decision to ban spit hoods in all places of incarceration, in all prisons across South Australia. So that was so huge. We had been campaigning for five years to make that happen. Of course, they tried to say that they had made that decision a few days before and just crap like that, but we definitely forced that decision. There's an election in March next year coming up in South Australia, and this means that because the ban on spit hoods hasn't been legislated with a different parliament, and even now with this government, they can reinstate spit hoods at any time. So to legislate the ban, it would mean that that decision is concrete and that we can trust that they won't be used again. We know that spit hoods have been used in places like Dondale. We've seen with young Dylan Bola, a spit hood placed upon him and him strapped to that chair. And just seeing those images was so shocking. And then, of course, on my brother's head as well. But we know that they're also used in mental health facilities. 
They're also used in hospitals. They're used, yeah, in a range of other environments, including health settings. And so we, while we are campaigning for, you know, the legislative abolition of speakers in all places of incarceration, we're also needing to extend that ban and are very aware of those who might have worn these when they are having a difficult time and trying to manage their mental health and well-being. And now we're campaigning as a Justice Fella group and our group is made up of all different organisers, some from Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide, obviously, the Northern Territory. We're just coming together to make sure that we can, you know, get a concrete outcome on this and save lives. If you would like to show support for the campaign, make sure to sign the petition to legislate the ban on spit hoods. You can find a link to the petition to ban spit hoods in the podcast show notes for Women on the Line. Follow the Justice for Fella page on Facebook to keep up to date on the campaign. Jumping now to later in the interview, I asked Latoya about abolition politics, that is abolishing policing, prisons and colonialism. We hear part of Latoya's response, linking Angela Davis's writing to their own dreams of an abolitionist future. I take the stance, like Angela says, that we have to imagine that radical change and radical transformation is possible. We have to consider that every day. We have to walk that out every day. And it is almost like an abolitionist imaginary. And it's about dreaming up future possibilities. But I'll tell you right now, when you are a black person in Australia, surviving under the colony, you don't always hope or dream much for yourself. I never expected to be alive this long and I've just turned 29 last week and this is the age Wayne died. This is the age Wayne was killed at. That stuff goes through my mind so it's quite hard to dream up a future for myself and I'm sure a lot of other people from different backgrounds can understand that when you're really uncertain of your future. So abolition actually gives me hope it gives me a future and it gives me a, a place to be able to dream where I'm accepted and I'm not shamed for dreaming up a life for myself that's different to what everybody is saying the outcome is for people like me. It was a privilege to speak to Latoya Rule. They're speaking on abolition and earlier about their fight for justice for their brother Wayne Pell Morrison who died almost five years ago in custody in Adelaide on Kerner Country, and for a national ban on the use of spit hoods. If you want to hear more of this interview, make sure to put Querying the Air 3CR in your search engine for a forthcoming podcast. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And make sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcasting app. I'm Iris Lee. Tune in to Women on the Line next week on your community radio station.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.